Welcome to BitCast on Podcast One, the video game podcast with the Axeman. Welcome back to the BitCast. It's October now, so I'm going to be a big dork and do a bunch of spooky games this month. The Legend of Zelda Majora's Mask has a reputation for being one of the darker installments in the series, and it's a bit of a somber, surreal experience. And masks are an important part of the game. Between all that and the fact that it's often compared with Ocarina of Time, I figured this would be a perfect opportunity to talk about the game, since my most recent episode was about Ocarina of Time. The most commonly told story of this game's development is that it started off as kind of a sequel to Ocarina of Time that was more along the lines of an expansion than a true sequel. It was going to be available for an add-on to the Nintendo 64 called the Nintendo 64 DD, but that add-on didn't really pan out and the team wasn't really thrilled with the idea of remixing Ocarina of Time. So instead they had one year to come up with an all-new Zelda game, it was directed by Eiji Aonuma and Yoshiaki Koizumi at Nintendo. Eiji Aonuma has a history of working on Zelda, being an assistant director for Ocarina of Time, even designing a few of the boss battles in the temples. And yes, the Water Temple was one of them. He became one of the co-directors for Majora's Mask afterward, and then went on to be the director for Wind Waker and Twilight Princess, then became the producer for the series. Put simply, he is the Zelda guy now. Miyamoto created the series, but Aonuma is the one intimately tied with it. And it may not have happened if not for his involvement in Majora's Mask. And like I said, Yoshiaki Koizumi was behind a lot of the game's charm as well. Majora's Mask wouldn't be quite what it is without his ideas. A lot of the story stuff in the three-day system, that kind of thing... It's even said that the moon falling was his idea, though I can't quite verify that. But he is a creative man. Way back in my Mario Galaxy episode, I talked about how he was the one who inserted Rosalina's storybook, one of the most unique and touching moments in the entire Mario series. Despite his involvement, I never really heard much about him. It wasn't until the Switch era that he started making more public appearances, at least as far as I saw. Ever see photos of a Japanese businessman wearing a red blazer and an oversized version of Mario's Odyssey hat? Yeah, that's him. He's been involved in a lot of Nintendo's games. Most recently and notably, he was the producer of Super Mario Odyssey. I really have to appreciate the uncertain implication that Majora's Mask helped advance the careers of these two, especially since they're respectively handling two of my favorite game series now. So these two, and of course the entire staff, had one year to make a new Zelda game hot off the heels of Ocarina of Time. That's a pretty tall glass to fill, especially considering how amazingly the first game was received. I'm going to begin by referencing an Iwata Asks interview. Those were articles where the late Satoru Iwata would interview various Nintendo staff. Specifically, I'll reference the one where he was able to speak with Aonuma about Majora's Mask. It was taking place around the time of the 3DS remake, but the section I'm going to be going over refers to the original version of the game. I mentioned how the team wasn't too interested in redoing Ocarina of Time, and in the interview, Aonuma mentions that they thought they did the best that they could with the original game. 
They tried to remix it, but couldn't quite get into it. Onuma was already in charge of the game even before it became Majora's Mask, and while he was working on it, he secretly tried making new stuff instead. After a while, he decided to point-blank ask Miyamoto if they could just make a new Zelda instead, and Miyamoto said yes, if they could do it in a year. It was a daunting task for Aonuma, and around that point he ran into Koizumi, who had an idea for a game where you just had this one small space, but did the same things over and over again. Koizumi agreed to help with this game, if he could try to implement that concept. And that's how the game's three-day system was created. One of the most well-known things about the game is the fact that it takes place within three days, and at the end, you have to reset back to the first day. It's a system that's seen a lot of controversy for being too alienating or difficult. Personally, I think the system is fine. Maybe on a first playthrough it's a little tricky, but I think the player usually has enough time to do everything they need. And even then, there's a song you can learn in the game to slow down the rate at which time passes. At that point, the time limit is almost a non-issue. Certain items you collect will be lost every time you reset the first day, but others won't, and that can be a little annoying, I'll grant. But the most important items tend to stay with you. You mainly just lose your ammunition, bottle contents, and any money that isn't stored at the bank. Those things can be retrieved pretty quickly, though. In the original version for 64, this was also the only way you could permanently save your progress by going back to the first day. They let you save at certain statues in the North American release, but those were only temporary saves. In the 3DS version of the game, though, they were made into permanent saves. In a lot of ways, this game is more difficult than Ocarina of Time. I don't know if I'd say it's outright hard, but the challenge more or less picks up where the last game left off. It was designed with Ocarina veterans in mind. Tellingly enough, there are no versions of this game to have ever come out before an equivalent version of Ocarina of Time. Now, going back to the three days, the context of the three days is that Link arrives in a parallel world called Termina after a creature called the Skull Kid steals his horse and the Ocarina of Time. Not only that, he transforms Link into a Deku Scrub, which is this little wimpy plant person, so Link spends three days in a new town in this new body, waiting for the chance to reach Skull Kid atop the clock tower. All the while, the moon is slowly falling from the sky and will destroy the world at the end of the third day. Link goes and gets the ocarina back, but regains his true form. But he fails to remove the eponymous Majora's Mask from the Skull Kid's face, so he has to repeat the same three days until he can find a way to defeat the Skull Kid. That involves going to the temples and beating the bosses and finding new items, all that fun Zelda stuff. The plot of the game is pretty bare-bones and short. Even for Zelda standards, there's not a whole lot going on. The real draw of the game for most people, myself included, is the side quests. A lot of the game is devoted to the quests you can do for the townspeople during the three-day cycle. You're rewarded with all kinds of upgrades, including masks. In Ocarina of Time, masks were just part of a small quest. Here, they're part of their own category of items, and there are 20 non-transformative masks. All of them serve different purposes and allow you to do different things. Some of them are more useful than others, and they can only be used in the human form. 
but it's a neat concept that I don't see done very often. I think the hats in A Hat in Time kind of bring this back to mind. In the last episode, I talked to my brother about how the Water Temple could be kind of the bottle episode for Ocarina of Time, which is to say there wasn't as much budget to go around, so instead they had to get more creative with what little they did have. Well, I'd say this is an entire bottle game. The world is mostly new, but the majority of the characters, monsters, and items are all recycled from Ocarina of Time. Even the abilities of some of your masks and transformation harken back to the features in Ocarina of Time. With all the recycled content, they were able to focus on doing new things with them. Take Anju, for instance. In Ocarina of Time, she was just there for the chicken-collecting minigame. Now, in Majora's Mask, they've given her an entire storyline with her missing fiancé and her smothering family members, to the point where her love story is one of the best-remembered quests in the entire franchise. Ingo, in Ocarina of Time, was just a jerk who takes over the ranch in the future. Here, renamed Gorman, he's a gruff circus leader who was inspired to do show business after seeing a singer long ago, and he goes to drown his sorrows when he's told that his troupe can't perform in the town carnival, and he has yet to actually break the news to them. What's more, this version of him also has a history with ranching. He left his brothers behind to pursue a career in show business, but they still miss him. And I could be here all day listing more examples, but it just goes to show that even though they recycled a lot of the characters from Ocarina, the writing for them is much deeper than it used to be. And this mainly applies to the townspeople. The outer regions of Termina are a little bit less memorable, except maybe the Ghost Canyon, but it's still quite an improvement. I'll be honest, Majora's Mask is my favorite Zelda game. It's one of my favorite games, period. So that's why I can go on and on about its development and different facts about it and stuff, but I'd rather spend the rest of the episode talking about my personal experience with the game. Though I would like to do a What Could Have Been episode where I talk about elements that could have been in the game but weren't. But for now, this, let's have my story with Majora's Mask. A lot like Ocarina of Time, we got this game close to release, and I never beat it until I played the 3DS version. I know a lot of people were divided over the changes that this version made, especially when Ocarina 3D didn't change as much in comparison, but I think most of the changes worked. And I suppose it does influence my feelings toward the game, since the new version is all I have to go with, but I think the game is an overall improvement from the 64 version. This is one of the creepier games in the series, and also one of the weirdest. First of all, the moon. It will crash and destroy Termina and everyone in it within three days. All the while, it has this extreme scowl on its inexplicable face. So anytime you look at the sky, you look up, there's that face glaring at you, almost taunting you that it's going to destroy everything. Whenever Link transforms, it looks like he's actually in pain, and he's merging with the mask, and it's really weird. The villain of the game itself is pretty depraved. It's causing the apocalypse and doing random curses and plagues on the side, all just for fun. There's no real difference between transforming some punk, poisoning the water supply, causing the end of the world. They're all the same thing to the villain. Even with Ganondorf, at least he had a concrete goal. Not to mention the mask itself, Majora's Mask. It always creeps me out a little bit whenever I stare at the eyes for too long. 
mask salesman in this game is also really creepy. Even though he's helping you, he changes his positions and his facial expressions very abruptly, and he knows way too much about certain topics. I wonder half the fan base thinks he's secretly evil. At one point, there are aliens in the game that show up and abduct cattle with their own creepy theme music, and most of the time you play, you're intentionally finding them to help with the ranch, but if your timing is right, you can just walk in on them in mid-invasion, not knowing anything about them. That happened to me once. I was just walking around at night. I decided to go visit the ranch. Oh, suddenly aliens. Nope, not gonna do this. Not dealing with this. I'm just gonna go back. Also, there's this dancing ghost that would show up at exactly midnight until you helped him. And he looked really bizarre. When I was younger, he, that actually made me afraid of being awake at midnight for a few months. I thought that weird dancing guy would show up for some reason. I don't know why. There's this entire canyon level to the east, where the undead are all over the place, including mummies that are keeping a little girl trapped in her house because they want to kidnap her mummified father. Okay, before I go further, let me just repeat that. There is a little girl living in an abandoned canyon. Her father is now a mummy in her basement due to a curse, and now the other monster mummies are circling her house like vultures because they want to take him away. And she couldn't be any older than ten. That's intense. I don't care who you are. Related to the canyon, it's where you learn the song The Elegy of Emptiness. That gives you the ability to create hollow mannequins of Link's different forms. All of them look a little bizarre, but special mention goes to the Human Link one, which became a mascot for a video game ghost story, or creepy pasta, dedicated to this game. Mannequins look a little less creepy in the 3DS version, but... They've left their mark. This is all really creepy stuff, and just to make sure I included all the highlights, I reread a list of the game's creepy moments, and I won't lie, I was on edge by the end of it. I had to like, kind of listen to some exciting music just to dilute the tension I was starting to feel. But on the subject of music, there is one thing in Majora's Mask that always creeped me out more than anything. Once you're at the final six hours before the moons crash, all the music in the game is replaced with this one somber, ominous tune. It plays no matter where you go in the game, as if to hammer in the point that the apocalypse is all-encompassing and there is no escape. The only time it won't play is if you're in the middle of a dungeon, though you've probably got other issues if you're still in the middle of the dungeon at that point. The song is just so... Eerie, like you're in this circumstance that just plain shouldn't exist. That's the kind of stuff that gets to me, and it's a little hard to put into words. The way the instruments are used, the fact that the song is omnipresent. This actually affects the way I play the game. I avoid letting the timer get that low. Unless I'm at a part of the story or a side quest that requires it. And then I'll probably mute the game. Music affects me. My dad always scoffed and rolled his eyes when I told him how creeped out I was, but yeah, I don't know. If music can make you happy or make you sad, I think music can make you feel uneasy and frightened. It's also about the ideas represented by the music. Of course, the game also punctuates the song with bell chimes from the inn getting more and more frequent, earth itself shaking as it was throughout the entire final day. And in the 3DS version, the sky itself becomes blood red. This is a nightmare. 
It's honestly one of the things that scared me the most in games. Even as an adult, I'm a little nervous whenever I have to play that part of the game. Also, the dancing ghost I mentioned, the first time I saw him was when he showed up during the final midnight. The second this song started playing, that guy also showed up, so it's probably part of the reason why that ghost guy started creeping me out. I'm not sure if the song even has an official name. I believe The Final Hours is the most common nickname that the fans have given it, though. Not only is the song really creepy, though, it's also sad. And sadness is another strong feeling in this game. Remorse is a recurring motif throughout the entire game. Link encounters characters who can't fulfill their mission. And he has to soothe their soul, which is how he unlocks his transformations. He's assuming their form and using their strength. In all the regions of the game, everyone is suffering to some degree. In the swamp, the water's been poisoned and the local princess is kidnapped and her best friend is framed. Mountains, eternal winter, and everyone will die, unaware that their hero died trying to stop it. Ocean, a fishwoman's eggs were kidnapped by pirates, and the father was mortally wounded by the thieves themselves. Canyon, all those undead monsters I talked about earlier, they're all filled with remorse from an ancient war. And then the town... It's got the biggest concentration of people in the game, and they all have their own struggles and anxieties, none of which are helped by the impending moon crash. It's worth it to see for yourself how everyone reacts to their imminent demise continually throughout the cycle. I'll say that among my favorites is the postman's reaction. Oh, and the sisters at the ranch provided you help them out during the first two days. Again, I love the characters in this game. So I could keep giving example after example if I really wanted to, but out of respect for your time, I'll try to avoid that. So, one heck of a game, huh? All this spooky stuff, all the sad stuff, a lot of weird stuff, too. It takes kind of a surreal direction, which supplements a lot of the horror, making elements of the game even creepier than they sound on paper. When I was a little kid, this kind of stuff would give me the creeps as you have gathered. Even as an adult, sometimes I'm still a little unsettled, as you've also gathered. The reason it's one of my favorite games is because I see Majora's Mask as an optimistic game. The point of the game, to me at least, isn't about the sorrow or the terror. It's about overcoming all that. Over and over again, Link has to help the townspeople and the denizens of the outer regions in one way or another, be it coming to terms with what they lost or turning an impossible situation around. A lot of it is mandatory for progression, but I like to think most players will be compelled regardless. And with the game's three-day cycle, it means a lot of your good deeds won't stick. You have to help them all over again. In the ending sequence, it's shown that all the quests you completed somehow all merged into an idealized timeline, but that wasn't enough for me. I made it a point to, with the help of an outline, complete as many quests as I could in one continuous cycle before finally letting the time limit bottom out and I faced off with the final boss. And that really just made the entire ending sequence more poignant for me, just to know that Link, and technically myself, was single-handedly responsible 
for all these people being happy, all of them being alive and unafraid of the big scary moon or the poisoned water or the aliens or the endless winter. All of it was gone because Link and I went and took care of it. As you might have noticed from this episode and even earlier episodes, I'm a big weenie who allows himself to get way too attached to things and games. I really felt proud of myself when I beat this game after helping all the citizens. It was a one-of-a-kind experience for me, and that's why Majora's Mask will probably always be one of my absolute favorite games. On a final note, today's favorite songs. I like Termina Field for being a more tense remake of the classic Legend of Zelda theme. The Clocktown theme is another favorite. It actually changes based on the day, getting faster and more tense as the apocalypse approaches. I tend to favor the day one version of the song when it's at its most peaceful. And I have to include the end credits theme, just for hammering in that feeling of satisfaction I felt. Legend of Zelda Majora's Mask has been available for 18 years. You should have no trouble getting a copy in some form. Oh my gosh, this game is 18 years old. If it were a person, it would be a legal adult now. Wild. Anyway, I stand by recommending the 3DS version. I can't think of anything but pedantic purism arguing otherwise. If you liked listening to me ramble about the games, then look forward to the rest of October by subscribing to the BitCast on Podcast One website or on the mobile app. You can also find the episode on iTunes. I've been the Axeman, and I'll see you on the next one. Also, Link is not dead in the game because he goes on to become a knight before Twilight Princess, and the locations in Termina are not the stages of grief. That was always a stretch. A few things kind of line up, but not enough, and there's not even any bargaining. Okay. Listen to BitCast anytime on PodcastOne.com and on the Podcast One app.